to you, Tangina. I appreciate our musicians this morning. I was just thinking, they got thrown a big curveball last night, and they hit it out of the park. I got a, texted Ricky when I got the text from Josh, and um, then we found out the flight was canceled. It was comforting to get the text that says, hey, we got it covered. So thank you all for, for doing that. Um, invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, for those of you that visit here regularly, you're thinking, wait a minute, you started in 2 Timothy. Well, this, I said last week, this is the prequel. The reason I started in 2 Timothy was just a couple of verses that had just impacted me during the spring that I wanted to preach and, and really form a platform for the rest of First and 2 Timothy, and that is all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, and the word that he used there could be translated man or woman of God, the human of God, would be adequate equipped for every good work. And so because we know that Scripture is inspired, literally God-breathed and profitable, then you unpack the rest of First and Second Timothy, and you see Paul speaking to Timothy, who he loved as his son in the faith. Timothy had been raised in a godly home, had a godly grandmother, a godly mother, and then Paul came along, and Paul has discipled Timothy up to this point. And so what you're reading is, is two letters, First and Second Timothy, to the pastor of a church in Ephesus that Paul dearly, dearly loved. Paul has spent a lot of time there himself. Paul is now in prison. He will be released from prison in between First and Second Timothy, and ultimately in Second Timothy, placed in a dungeon. And most scholars believe not long after Second Timothy is written, Paul would be put to death, probably by having his head chopped off. So that's the context of where we come to this passage. And I entitled this, In His Service. If you've come to faith in Christ, you have now become a servant of the Most High God. And some of you are thinking, oh, wait a minute, isn't that just for the preachers? Isn't that just for the people that are paid to be good, and the rest of you are just good for nothing? No. doesn't mean that. We're all in His service. It happens to be some of us are vocational servants, pastors or staff members of churches or missionaries, but we all serve God, right, if you're a child of God. And if you're here this morning, you're thinking, wait a minute, I've never trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. i got good news for you. This passage is for you too. I was speaking to a group of middle schoolers and high schoolers a few years ago, and I really wanted to study Old Testament, New Testament characters and come up with some common characteristics of those who God used in service. And so I thought, well, you know, if I could come up with ten common characteristics. So I looked at people like King David and Abraham and Moses and Paul and Peter and others throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, and I couldn't come up with ten that were common among them. And then I thought, well, let's just make it five. Couldn't come up with five. Let's make it three, add a point to it. It would be a good sermon. I really came up with one, and it's found in Second Chronicles 16.9. And at the end of the day, I think this offers all of us hope. To be in the service of God it is not about your ability. It's not about God says, you know, she's good looking. I could really use her. Or he's athletic. I could really use him. Or he's a good speaker. Or she's a great musician or a good speaker. I'll, I'll use them. No. The great thing about God is God uses the broken things that oftentimes the world casts aside. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this. It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro. Throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So that's the question this morning. You want to be used by God? 
The question is, is your heart completely His? Don't raise your hand, but do you ever feel unworthy to be used by God? Hopefully the answer to that question is yes, because none of us are used by God because we're worthy to be used by God. We're used by God because God utilizes the broken things of this world. You know, you look at King David and you think, well, David was the man after God's own heart, right? And yet David had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He committed the sin of lying, trying to cover it up. And worse than that, he had the guy put to death to cover up his sin. So David was an adulterer and a murderer. You look at Abraham. He didn't live a perfect life. He lied, among other things. Moses didn't do everything right. God had to set him straight. Wasn't able to enter the promised land. You look at Paul. We're going to talk about him because this passage is written by Paul. But when his name was Saul, persecuted the church. You look at Peter, who wrote First and Second Peter, and you think, well, Peter is an example of somebody that never did anything wrong. What did Peter do? He denied Christ, not once but three times. Does that offer hope for those of us then that think, you know what? I'm not perfect, neither are and neither were they. So let's look at this passage. Beginning in verse 12 through 17, 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy. Here's Paul speaking to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's just the way Paul starts 1 Timothy. Imagine what he's going to say as he progresses through through 1 Timothy. But this is the platform. This is the basis. Paul, reflecting on his own life, says, you know what? I am thankful for Christ Jesus our Lord. I think as Paul reflected on the gospel, reflected on not only what he was doing now, but what Christ had done in his life, He was overwhelmed, and all he could say is, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful because he considered me faithful. How could Paul be considered faithful apart from what Christ had done in his life? Paul thought he was serving God when he was persecuting the church. But he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he considered me faithful. And two things he did when he considered me faithful, he strengthened him. Same way in Second Chronicles 16, 9, it says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro over the face of the earth that he may strongly support, that he may strengthen those whose heart is completely his. Paul says, I'm thankful that he's put me into service because he considered me faithful. The word for service here is where we get the word deacon. We kind of misuse that word thanks to the King James Version. We didn't translate the word, we transliterated the word. And so we think of deacon as only an office in the church, and yet deacon is that person that serves God, servant of the Most High God. 
So thankful that he's considered me faithful. He has strengthened me. Literally, he has empowered me. Isn't that great? Because listen, none of us have the strength in ourselves to serve God effectively, to serve God powerfully. But the power comes not from us. It comes from who? It comes from God. So because God saw Paul was faithful, he has strengthened him. He's empowered him. And he's put him into service. Even though. Here's what I want you to think for a minute. <laughs> Even though I was formerly. So there are things in Paul's past that if you and I were looking for a leader in the church, we wouldn't have chosen Paul because of this stuff. In fact, Paul scared a lot of people in the early church. And Paul says, even though formally, this is part of my past life, when I went by the name Saul, this is what was true of me. Three things. I was a blasphemer. Literally, someone who took God's name in vain. I was a blasphemer, impious towards God. Not only did Paul slander God, he was encouraging other people to deny Christ and slander God themselves. He compelled others to blaspheme. Paul says, when I look back on my past, I recognize the grace that's been poured out on me because just that one thing would be enough to disqualify me. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. That word literally means to pursue. Paul hounded Christians in the first century before he came to faith in Christ. He didn't just hound them in Jerusalem. He hounded them outside of Jerusalem. He said, I was a persecutor. I was also a violent aggressor. Paul was driven by violence and contempt for what he saw happening in the first century church. He didn't like it. And so to put it in our vernacular, he became a bully. That's Paul. You want to talk about a terrorist? Paul was a terrorist for the first century church with a passion and a zeal that is admirable. It's just admirable for the wrong thing. In fact, look at just a couple of passages back in Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. This will give you a picture of who Saul was when he went by the name Saul. Saul was in hardly agreement. Acts 8, 1 through 3 was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Who was him? Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house to house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Then a chapter later, chapter 9, Verses 1 through 2. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was Saul, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And I love the road to Damascus. If you continue reading in chapter 9 of Acts, Paul encounters Jesus in a dramatic way. Remember what Jesus said to him? Paul goes face plant on the dirt, bright light all around him. And here's what he hears. Here's what he hears. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The way Jesus looked at it, you're not just persecuting my children of the faith. You're persecuting me. And he was doing it with a passion. He was blind for three days. They led him on to Damascus. He studied, learned, scared a lot of Christians. I mean, imagine this. You've heard about Paul. 
Saul persecuting the church, and now you heard he's going to be at church Sunday. (laughs) Well, I think I'm staying away this Sunday because I've heard what happens when he shows up at church. But what's the difference for Paul? More than a name change, it follows, I was shown mercy. I don't know that word's ever had more meaning than when you apply it to somebody like the Apostle Paul. He was shown mercy. Mercy means not receiving what you deserve. What did Paul deserve? Paul deserved go straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. That's what he deserved. And yet Paul said, in spite of the fact that I was a blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor, I was shown mercy. Listen, if you're a child of God, it's because you've been shown mercy. None of us have gotten what we deserve. The scary thing is, for those who are apart from Christ, those who reject Jesus, will get exactly what they deserve. They'll spend eternity separated from God. Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. But the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. He puts two words together to simply say grace was more than enough. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Ephesians 2.8 on your t-shirts this morning. For by grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. If we could claim it, we'd write a book about it and tell everybody else how to do it. We can't claim it. It's God's amazing grace. Paul was shown mercy, received grace with the faith and love found only in Christ Jesus. Here's the good news, folks. If Christ could change Saul, then it shows us he's in the business of radical transformation. He can change you. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's hope. There's mercy. There's grace. And it's found in Christ Jesus. So Paul was counted faithful. But then the point is, Jesus came to save. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement. In other words, one you can bank on. The statement I'm about to make is a faithful, trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Take it all and fully approve this statement. Nine words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I love that. In a nutshell, there's the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If I did my math right, that's nine words. It's actually less than that in the Greek language. I think it's only eight words in Greek. That's the point. Christ came into the the world to save sinners. And And Paul, in all humility, says, among whom I am foremost of all. And I want you to catch this. Right before the passage we're looking at, Paul outlines some sinners in talking about the law and the benefit of the law that points out our need for a Savior. Paul says, for those who are lawless, this is verse 9, for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been made entrusted. Paul is just outlining some of the sins that Timothy would encounter in the church at Ephesus and in the community of Ephesus. And Paul's saying, yes, 
these are the sinners, and there's more than that because he says anything else is contrary to sound teaching. But here's the hope. There's salvation because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to the people who didn't need God. He came to the people who were desperately needy for God. Paul said, I was the foremost of all of them. Paul said, you stack up sinners on the left side, and i got to tell you, I'm worse than any of them. That's the right attitude to have. Paul said, I am foremost. I'm the chief. I'm in front of all of them. But Jesus reached down and saved me so that he could demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. I love that. The picture that we have in Paul is a demonstration of the patience, the grace, the mercy of Jesus. He came to live a life that we couldn't live. He came to die a death that we deserved to die. And he came to rise in victory over enemies that we couldn't conquer, namely death, the grave, and sin. The purpose of Christ's salvation is to display the glory of God. It's all for his glory. As an example, literally a pattern, an outline for an artist, or an illustration to express the passion in the heart behind an author. As a perfect, an example of his perfect patience, an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. The more you magnify the grace, the majesty, the glory of God, the deeper your consciousness of sin gets. One of my favorite speakers was a guy named Dave Busby, and the line, Dave Busby has passed away now. One of the lines that I love about that Dave said was, every now and then you just need to glance at your cesspool. You don't need to dwell there. You don't need to gaze there. Every now and then you just need to take a look back and think, thank God for what he saved me from. It'll make a difference in how you live your life going forward. Don't spend a lot of time there. Gaze at the face of Christ. But every now and then it's refreshing to remember. That's what Paul does. Paul remembers the chief of sinners that he was. That's what he formerly was. If you're a child of the, of the king, if you're a child of God, that stuff's in the past. As far as God's concerned, it is gone. You've been forgiven. So the gospel message is God loves you. God loves you. But I'm a sinner separated from God, apart from Christ. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty that a holy God required for sin. So I place my faith in that and say that's what will save me. Not my own effort, but the grace of God and His mercy demonstrated. I receive forgiveness and life in Him. Paul reminds Timothy, Jesus came to save sinners. So, Timothy, you're going to encounter sinners, and it's easy to give up on sinners. It's easy to just write them off and say, well, they're not living for God. They're going to get what they deserve. But that's who Jesus Christ came to save, among whom we all were a part at one time. And then Paul ends verse 17 with just a reminder to Timothy of the glory of the king. Now to the king. You and I don't identify a lot with kings. There's still kings on planet Earth, but we don't have one in America. But there were kings when Paul was writing this. And Paul contrasts his king 
with the kings of the earth. He said, first of all, he's king eternal. Means he had no beginning, he has no end, he's eternal. The kings that you see on planet earth were born and they will die. He's immortal, literally undecaying. Any other king that's ever been a king or queen on planet earth has eventually been put in the ground and their body is decaying or has decayed. He's immortal. He's invisible. He can't be gazed at, and yet he reveals himself through self-revelation. We saw a glimpse through Jesus, but we see a glimpse of God, the invisible God. And he's, Paul says, the only God. Any other being that wants to elevate themselves and say, I'm a God, worship me, pales in comparison to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's the one we should worship. Philippians 2 puts it this way, there's coming a day. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Are you willing to acknowledge God as your king and your Lord? I thought about how I wanted to end the service today. So I'm in, I've invited someone else to do our benediction today. We're not going to sing a song. I've invited S.M. Lockridge to do it better than I can do it. I just saw Joseph Copian in there. Do you know what S.M. stands for? This is an African-American pastor that passed away a few years ago, son of a Baptist preacher. His name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, S.M. Lockridge. So you stay seated. And let SM close our service this morning. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the lostest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the
the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen.